Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. 
Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you both very much. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind just looking back across with me to chapter 1 and verse 8 of Acts. Jesus said to his apostles, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let me pray for us as we look at God's word. Father, we need to receive power as we come to your words. The New Testament tells us that we need power from you if we're going to know you and know your love and know what you're like. And we really, really want that as we come together to the Bible this evening. And so we pray that you will work in power amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. You will receive power. It's quite a thing to be told, isn't it? Power is the thing that we're going to think about for a few minutes together this evening. And I wonder how you feel about that. On the one hand, if power is the capacity or the ability to get things done, to make stuff happen, who doesn't want that? Like, we, we want power. There are loads of situations in which, you know, I, I bet we wish we had a little bit more power or more ability to make things happen. Um, I'm very fortunate to own a car, but it's a car with quite a small engine. And um, if ever I'm driving up a hill with a couple of passengers in the car, I'm thinking, I wish somebody would say to me, you will receive power, because it's sort of dropping all the way. I was thinking this week about Keir Starmer. And I imagine there's quite a lot of people around him at the moment saying, you will receive power. I wonder how he feels about that. This time of year, I guess people all over the country nervously looking at energy bills and thinking, well, my power is costing me quite a lot. I wouldn't mind just receiving a little bit of power. We, we want power. We want the ability to make stuff happen. And you'll be acutely aware of the situations in your life in which you feel powerless, where you desperately want things to be a certain way, but you just you can't make it happen. And it's a horrible feeling. So we want power. But on the other hand, 
you know, we, we kind of rightly have a suspicion of power or when people want too much power or they have power over us. I mentioned Keir Starmer. Tony Benn was another politician who famously had five questions for people with power. He asked them, what power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you exercise it? Who are you accountable to? And how do we get rid of you? Rightly, there's a suspicion uh, of power as well. Well, this evening, that four-word promise in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power, comes to us if we're Christians. Or rather, you have received power. Just might not realize it. In the first instance, Jesus is saying it to his apostles, to his 12 closest followers and the eyewitnesses of his life. And by Acts chapter 1, Jesus had died and then been raised from the dead. And he's about to ascend to heaven. And he says to them this, that you're going to receive power. And that must have felt to them extraordinarily unlikely at the time to these these 12 people. They were a, a tiny, oppressed Christian minority within a pretty small, oppressed Jewish minority, within the most powerful empire um, in in the history of the world. There were 12 of them. A few days earlier, they'd locked themselves in a room for fear of being arrested by the people with the real power. None of them knew people in high places. None of them was well-educated or wealthy. No power in worldly terms. And yet their message has somehow got as far as Oxford 2,000 years later. How did that happen? And we need to know the answer to that, not least because today Christians are a shrinking minority, in this country at least. In worldly terms, our power is diminishing. There are reasons to feel powerless, but Jesus says you'll receive power. And it's clear if you look again at uh, chapter 1, verse 8, that uh, he is giving a source of power that is enough to get the message of his death and resurrection out to the whole world. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in in Jerusalem and so on to the ends of the earth. So we've been thinking over the last couple of weeks, and we're going to think next week as well, about mission and evangelism and and more and more people hearing about Jesus, the growth of God's kingdom. Well, here in Acts chapter 1 and 2 is the power for mission. And that power came a few days after this promise we've been looking at. It came in chapter 2. What is our power to take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. We're going to see two things in uh, Acts chapter 2. We're going to see the gift of the Spirit and the certainty of our message. So firstly, the gift of the Spirit is there. Well, it's all over it, isn't it? But most obviously it's there in in verse 1 to 21. Have a look down to chapter 2, verse 1 with me. It's the day of Pentecost, which is uh, a big, one one of three big religious festivals in Jerusalem each year. And it's a real multicultural moment. So if you look at verse 5, you can see they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Told that at Pentecost, the population of Jerusalem would swell from 50-odd thousand, which it normally was, to about 200,000. So it's absolutely heaving with people from all over the place. It's like Wimbledon when the tennis is on. And um, that's what's going on in Jerusalem. And in verse 1, all the Christians are together in one little room in that busy city when three very, very significant things happen to them. Verse 2 speaks about the, uh, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. And then verse 3, what, what look like tongues of fire appear. And both of those two, wind and fire, 
are to do with the presence of God in the Old Testament. So you might think about the pillar of fire by which the people of Israel were led through the wilderness. So God is making his presence felt in this room. But the third thing that happens to them is the really, really significant one. Verse 4. All of them, all the Christians, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Holy Spirit comes, so they speak. And um, in some ways, that's no surprise. Um, If we've been reading Luke's gospel really, really carefully, which is the sort of prequel to Acts, almost every time the Holy Spirit comes on somebody or, or, or fills somebody, they start to speak. In fact, I think that's true most of the time in the whole of the Bible. When the Holy Spirit fills somebody or, or, or comes upon somebody, um, they start speaking. Maybe most significantly, in Luke chapter 4, um, Jesus had quoted a prophecy from the Old Testament from Isaiah. He said, this is a prophecy all about me. And it says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So that's what, that is what happens here in Acts chapter 2 to all the Christians. Spirit comes, they start speaking. They start proclaiming. And we're told that they speak in other tongues. And I think it's clear here that the other tongues being referred to are other human languages. Sometimes the word tongues might mean secret, even heavenly languages in other places in the New Testament. But here it must mean that they're speaking in human languages because um, the word tongues there in verse 4 is repeated in verse 11 where people say, we hear these, these people declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So in other words, Jerusalem is full of people from all over the place, and now all of a sudden, these uneducated people from Galilee are declaring the wonders of God in the languages of the people who are gathered in Jerusalem. So verse 8 and 9, there's, there's the list of places where, where people have come from. And take an example, the, the, the last people group on that list are um, Arabs there in verse 11. So you can imagine one of the Arabs in uh, on the day of Pentecost, wandering around Jerusalem and the streets are packed and I guess mo- most people are speaking Hebrew or something, then all of a sudden a crowd of people spill out and they're speaking all sorts of different languages and then you just catch it and you can hear that one of them, one of them is speaking in Arabic and declaring the wonders of God in Arabic and then perhaps someone who's wandering through the streets of Jerusalem and they're from Crete, they hear somebody declaring the wonders of God in their language and I take it if Somebody had been there on the day of Pentecost from England. They might, have, they might have been one of them enabled to speak the wonders of God in English. So the Holy Spirit has come, and the very first thing he has done is to enable or to empower intelligible proclamation of the wonders of God to people from all over the world, from the ends of the earth. It's as if the Holy Spirit is setting out his stool and saying, this is what I'm here to empower all Christians to do. Not necessarily to speak in other languages, but he's here to make it possible for us together to speak about what God has done to all kinds of people from all over the world, just as we saw in chapter 1, verse 8. One or two people who were there in the crowd dismiss it as nonsense. We heard that there in verse 13. Some of them made fun of them. Ha, 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 they've had too much wine. But most people, the bulk of people in in verse 12, 
They want to know what this is all about. And so the Apostle Peter stands up in verse 14, and he says, I'm going to explain this to you. And interestingly, what he does is he gets out his Bible, and he turns to Joel chapter 2, and uh, quotes there you can see from verse 16 from Joel chapter 2. And actually, the start of verse 16 says literally, no, this Pentecost is that that Joel is talking about. This is a fulfillment of what's going on there. All the way through the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit, he'd he'd filled the odd person here and there for a little while. In particular, he'd filled the prophets, the likes of Elijah and Isaiah and Joel. But Joel here is is promising in this this, uh, prophecy that Peter quotes there in verse 17 and 18. Joel is promising that one day the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all of God's people. You see that there? In the last days, God says, verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, and so on. All of God's people are made prophets. I think that's the force of what he's saying. He talks about people seeing visions and having dreams, But there weren't actually any visions or dreams happening at Pentecost. Instead, I think all of those are ideas connected with being a prophet. And so you take them together. And what Joel is saying is that the Holy Spirit is going to come on all of God's people. And he's going to empower all of God's people to be prophets. Powerful speakers of the word of God to the world. And Peter on the day of Pentecost says that is what is happening in front of you. And so still today. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and the power that Elijah, for example, had in his locker when he was doing his prophesying in the Old Testament, you have now got in your locker. You are an Isaiah, a Daniel, all the rest of them were empowered as as prophets. And in fact, we, we won't worry about flicking up Joel 2, but if we did, we'd see that Peter has made one little tweak to uh, the quote from Joel. So if you look very carefully at verse 17, I'll read how Joel starts. He says, In those days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. You see that Peter's tweaked it. He's not saying those days, those sort of far off days anymore. But instead he says, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. So the coming of the Holy Spirit has kicked off something that the Apostle Peter calls the last days. A little bit like when, um, I don't know if you ever in the Olympics watched those um, track cycling races where they, you know, these poor people have been going round and round and round this track like lycra-clad hamsters um, for what seems like forever. And then the bell rings and that means we're on the final lap and oh, they've got to go for it again. Bell rings and it's the final lap. Pentecost is like the bell. We're on the final lap now of God's plans for this world. We're in the last days, and it is marked by prophecy, Joel says, all of God's people empowered to speak his words. It's marked, verse 19 and 20, by chaos and and convulsions. And I take it that verse 19 and 20 are speaking metaphorically about the chaos of the world that we live in. And it's marked by the gospel of God being proclaimed in power to the ends of the earth, so that, verse 21, 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gift of the Spirit. Do you sometimes think, as a Christian, oh, what, can, what can I do? What, what power have I actually got? I, you know, I make my little efforts to try and say something about the fact that I'm a Christian to my friends in college or my friends at school, and you know, it just seems like I make absolutely no progress whatsoever. You think, what power have I got as the HR department send a warning round about proselytizing? You look at the church and you think, well, what, what can we actually do? Battered by crises and scandals and persecution. We wonder how we're going to be witnesses to the estate down the road, let alone to the ends of the earth. What power have we got? Well, Acts chapter 2 is saying to us that the power that we've got is the third person of the Holy Trinity living in us. It's the one who gave Elijah his power the one who even gave the Lord Jesus in his humanity, his power, lives in us. And his agenda in these last days is to empower us to speak the gospel to all kinds of people to the ends of the earth. Not necessarily that he's going to make us eloquent or clever. Not necessarily that he's going to give us loads of visible results, but he is going to be at work through us as we speak. Try and imagine yourself into uh, the Apostle Peter's shoes. How must he have felt when he realized all of this stuff? Thinking, I, silly, hot-headed, scaredy-cat Peter, now have the Holy Spirit of God living in here. I've got power to be a prophet and to speak about my Lord, my friend. What's he going to be thinking? He's going to be thinking the world's just changed. My life's never going to be the same again. I've got the Holy Spirit living in me. The, the final lap bell of history has just gone off. Let me add it, I assume, is what Peter's thinking in that situation. You've received power. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit, that first thing. Second thing Acts give us, gives us, this, this is our source of power, a bit more briefly, is the certainty of the message. It's verse 22 to the end. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know if you noticed this when um, uh, Nuller and Faith were reading it, but when the Holy Spirit comes in power on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up to explain what's going on. He doesn't actually spend that much time talking about the Holy Spirit. In fact, from, uh, from verse 17 sorry, verse 18, he doesn't get mentioned again until verse 32, which I mean, there's all sorts we might say about that, but Peter, one of the things that Peter wants to say to us is that Pentecost is the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle that tells you who Jesus is. So uh, Peter kind of puts together some of the pieces for us. So verse 22, piece one, here is the incredible life of Jesus, a man accredited to you by God, sorry, accredited by God to you with miracles, wonders, and signs. Verse 23, verse, sorry, verse 23, the second piece, his death. He was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Just pause and notice there whose plan Jesus' death was. The plan of wicked and responsible human beings 
and simultaneously the good plan of God. And those two things are never in competition. So it's death. Verse 24, uh, next piece, his resurrection from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And Peter says that's a really important deal that God raised him from the dead. Because um, hundreds of years before, he quotes quotes King David there uh, from verse 25, hundreds of years before, King David had written a psalm um, in which he talks about various things, but flick over to the page to verse 27, where we see King David in that psalm talks about the fact that God is not going to abandon him to the realm of the dead. He's not going to let him decay. But as Peter points out in verse 29, David did stay dead. He says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tomb is here to this day. In fact, his tomb is still in Jerusalem to this day. You can go and see it, and it's just around the corner from the King David Hotel, named after his tomb, uh, at which you can stay tomorrow night for £400 per person if you want to. (laughs) David stayed dead, but David always knew, verse 30, that he was speaking about one of his descendants who was going to be raised to reign on the throne forever. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. And now, next piece, verse 33, he's ascended into heaven to the right hand of God. Another thing that David never did and uh, wrote a song about from where he sent the Holy Spirit to make Pentecost happen. Peter says, if you add all of those pieces together, Jesus died and then rose again, like David said his royal descendant was going to. Jesus ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven. Add all of those together, and what you get is verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So the very thing that Pentecost empowers us to speak about, it also underlines as true. The risen Jesus, he's Lord and he's the King. Gift of the Spirit, certainty of the message. And after all, we're not going to proclaim it, we're not going to talk about it, we're not going to talk about Jesus unless we have confidence that it's actually true. Why would we? Here we have Peter saying, promised through all the scriptures in the Old Testament, worked out in history, and then proclaimed by the Holy Spirit through the church. This message, this gospel that Christians believe, is not just out of nowhere. It's not just wishful thinking. We're not peddling religious snake oil here. It's not just our take on things. It's confirmed and sure. Two things that give us power. Gift of the Spirit the certainty of the message. Next week, we're going to think a little bit more about how we can work as a team to get that message out to the ends of the earth. Um, But for now, let's just finish by dwelling on this fact once more. We've got power from God. It's very likely that there's some here this evening who are a little bit like the crowd on the day of Pentecost. Sort of some awareness of stuff to do with Jesus, but you're thinking... What what does this mean? What's going on here? Well, we've heard the explanation from the Apostle Peter. Uh, What's going on here is that Jesus is alive and he's Lord. And so the crowd ask a second question in verse 37. 
Hear Peter's message. It says, cut to the heart. They asked, what shall we do? And maybe that's your question this evening or perhaps the question you need to have. You've heard this stuff and it just confronts you as true. What shall we do? Peter says, what we should do is repent and be baptized, verse 38. That is, get on board with Jesus as the Lord and the Messiah. And as you do that, you will experience forgiveness um, and the same gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 says, on that first day, 3,000 people (laughs) made that decision. And you can make it today. That'll be some of us. But lots of us will be, will be, like, will be disciples of Jesus um, as, as on this day. We'll be his followers already. And I think what we need to realize is where our power comes from. It's always a risk in a kind of a slightly bigger church that we might think our power comes from our numbers or our influence or our history or our skills that we have between us or our finances. Our power comes from the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon was a great 19th century preacher, maybe the greatest 19th century preacher. But um, he used to say to himself as he climbed up the steps to preach, with each step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. He recognized where the real power source was. Nothing of any lasting value comes any other way. But I guess... For every one of us feeling kind of powerful and pleased with ourselves, there are probably five of us who are are prone to feeling powerless and weak, just like the disciples before Pentecost. How can I speak about Jesus? How am I ever going to make any progress with this message? I'm too weak for it. Acts 2 says, you are empowered to be a prophet. God lives in you. You're a spirit-filled speaker of a glorious and true and confirmed message. We've got everything we need. Tony Benn could ask his five questions to the church. He could ask his five questions to you. What power have you got? Answer, the power of a prophet to speak the message of the risen and reigning Jesus. Where did you get it from? Direct from God the Holy Spirit living in me. In whose interest do you exercise it? In the interest of the whole world. The the ends of the earth, so that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Who are you accountable to? To God, who one day is going to bring these last days, this final lap, to an end and put everything right. How can we get rid of you? You can't. We will be here to the end of the age, speaking about Jesus in the power of his spirit. Let me pray. We thank you, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out by Jesus on each of us who trust in him. Thank you for his power at work in us in all manner of ways, but his power at work through us to get the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Please help us to know and to bank on his powerful work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.